The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel can be found at our website, myemmanuel.net. Amen. Thank you, Eddie. Thanks, Ben, for leading us in worship. It's great to worship with you. Glad you're with us in person. For those of you who are with us online, we're delighted that you're with us as well. Not only do we stream it uh, live online, but then we put it up and it's there all the rest of the week so you can watch it at the time that fits your schedule best. And we trust that you will do that and connect with God's people. I love the I love the, the verbiage of the last worship song, I'm undone by the mercies of the Lord. It kind of comes from the old King James Version, Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah says, I am undone. And, it, and it, the phrase means uh, it's, uh, it overwhelms me. It's too much for me. So uh, too much grace, too much mercy. God just has a way of pouring grace on top of grace and blessing us beyond measure. And that's why we come to worship him today. I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We come to the portion where we look at God's word together. We do not do this because we've been doing it uh, for centuries. It's not just a it's not just an ecclesiastical tradition that we stop and read some scriptures. We look at God's word because we believe that's what it is. It's the revelation of God to us so that we know how to live our lives. For so many people, the Bible is just an archaic religious book, and they have never taken the time to consider that it's living, powerful, active. It comes right from the heart of God himself to us so that we would know how to live our lives. And indeed, that's what we've been studying the last three weeks, three weeks ago, how to live our lives in uncertainty. And the The only thing that seems to be certain these days is uncertainty, and we certainly live in crazy times. Uh, Last week, we went to James chapter 1, and we talked about how to deal with difficulty. If there's ever a chapter in the Bible that's written for what to do when you're going through hard times, it's James chapter 1. That's a place where you should put a bookmark and, and you should go and read it often because when you're in trouble, when you don't know what to do, when life is hard, James chapter 1 is your answer. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, don't even worry about tomorrow because today is going to be hard enough as it is. And so that's an instruction to us. So uh, this week, I, I want to take one more step at talking about adversity, uncertainties, difficulties. But today's sermon's a little different. Instead of talking to you about your uncertainties or talking to you about your difficulties, today I want to talk to you about how to help someone else who is in trouble. Um, every single one of us know somebody who's in trouble. Here, this will be very easy. Let's just do this. Those of us who are here in person, let's do this by the raised hand. How many of you know someone who uh, is dealing with some kind of addiction trouble right now in their life? How many of you know that person? Uh, That's by far most of us. How many of you know someone who is, uh, right now they're having marriage problems in their life? And maybe husband and wife, you need to look at each other and go, that's us. 
Um, how many of you know somebody who's got financial problems right now? How many of you know that person? You could look at each other again. Some of you have qualified for all this so far, haven't you? How many of you know somebody who's struggling with uh, depression or anxiety right now? So uh, for, for most of you, I just went four for four. And, and I haven't even give, I could I could go on and give you another 12 or 15. Most of us in this room would keep raising our hand. I know a person like that. I know a person like that. And many of us know people who have all these problems. So this sermon is not about how to find people in trouble. You already know people in trouble. The sermon is how do you help someone who's in trouble? Now, uh, Luke chapter 10 is a famous passage. In fact, it's so famous that many people who have never read the Bible know this story. The story is called The Good Samaritan. But it has a context, and in it we find a, a template. We find the instruction of a sovereign God inspired by the Holy Spirit on how we are to help someone in trouble. Do you have Luke chapter 10? I want you to find verse 25. This is how the story starts. It's the context of the story. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. The, uh, the religious establishment did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they were always trying to prove to uh, the, the crowds that he wasn't the Messiah, and they did this by asking him what they thought were really hard questions. And so here's an attorney. Attorney could be a Pharisee, a Sadducee, could be a scribe, one who knows the law. He, he says, uh, teacher, here's the phrase, here's the question in verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this attorney is asking this question with an Old Testament mindset. Uh, remember, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. This story is a New Testament story, but even Luke wouldn't write this story down until probably 20 years after it happened. So the attorney says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. There's no empty tomb yet. He hasn't descended back to the throne of the Father yet. He's asking this question about the scriptures of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. That's what he's asking about, and that's the basis for it. So Jesus does what he does on so many other occasions. He answers the question with a question, and he says to the attorney, he says, well, uh, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? How do you read the law? So now what he's done is he's got the attorney to answer his own question. And the attorney says in verse 27, well, this is what I think. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says in verse 28, you got it. That's it. You answered it correctly. That's the correct answer. And he says, do this and you will live. Now, it doesn't mean that you will continue living in your physical body. Jesus is talking about you will live forever. This is what is the basis of salvation and eternity. This is really what he was saying to Martha in John chapter 11 when he says, if you believe in me, you will never die. It's, it's eternal life that they're talking about. Now, if the story had stopped right there, we would, might even think, man, this attorney... He really had his act together. This guy, 
he asked Jesus a hard question. Jesus posed the question back to him, and he answered it correctly. And we know that because Jesus said, you've got it. So we might think the guy's brilliant, really smart, but the story continues. Verse 29 says, but the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, because remember it ends with, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, well, <laughs> yeah, who really is my neighbor? Oh, this, this attorney reminds me of me. There are some times in my life where people that I was around, they thought I was really smart until I opened up my mouth. Uh, have you ever had that where somebody kind of thought you, that this about you and then you opened up your mouth, you stuck your foot in it, and they went, oh. well, here's this guy. He's talking to Jesus like at the same level, the right level, the scriptural level. He gives the right answer. He's dead on the money. Jesus says, you've got it. Do that and you will live. And now we learn something else about him. He wasn't loving God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. And he wasn't loving his neighbor as himself. And he thinks he's smart because he goes, well, you know, who can really, who's my neighbor? And it is to this response, this question, that Jesus tells this story that almost everybody knows. Here's how the story goes. Jesus answering the question, who's my neighbor? In verse 30, he says, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves or robbers who uh, robbed him, stripped him, beat him, and, and they departed, leaving him for dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw the guy, the guy who's beat up, left for dead, he passed by on the other side of the road. He, he went over to the other side so people wouldn't notice that he saw him. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side of the road. Now, as Jesus tells the story, he, he makes these two guys who are very honored in Hebrew culture, a priest and a Levite, he makes them the the not heroes of the story. And yet, so priest and Levite, what does that mean to us in American culture? It's a pastor and a worship leader. So the pastor and the worship leader don't do the right thing. They separate themselves from what they should do. They pass by on the other side of the road. Now, just me personally, I can see the worship leader doing this, but maybe not the pastor. Okay, so then Jesus does the unthinkable. Now, he's already, he's already started the story in a way that the Hebrews wouldn't expect. The pastor, the worship leader, are not going to be the heroes of the story. These, these are the guys who have messed up. Who is the hero of the story? Jesus then in verse 33 says, but a Samaritan. The Hebrews hated the Samaritans. They were highly prejudicial against the Samaritans. These Samaritans were disenfranchised. They, 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 their rights weren't, nobody stood up for their rights. Nobody cared about them. Samaritans actually were in a really bad place because they weren't Gentiles, but they weren't Jews. They were Jews who married Gentiles, and their offspring were called 
Samaritans. And so the Gentiles hated them and the Jews hated them. They, they were hated by all segments of society. And Jesus chooses to make the focal point of the story a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, verse 33, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii. A, a denarii is a, is a day's wages. So however much money you make an hour times eight, a day's wages times two, two denarii, that's how much money he left for the innkeeper. So he gave him two days' wages, and he said, uh, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. And then Jesus ends the story this way. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Now, remember what the question was. The question was, who is my neighbor? Jesus didn't actually answer the question. He didn't say, who is your neighbor? He said, who was the neighbor? Who acted neighborly? The, the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. So he just says, well, it was, a, it was the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. What we have here is a template. We have a, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. We have instruction to us about how to live our lives when we have somebody in our life who's in trouble. Now, most of you have just raised your hand multiple of times saying, I know this kind of person that's in trouble. I know that kind of person's in trouble. I know this person's in trouble. So this sermon is not about go out and find somebody in trouble. You don't have to. People in trouble will find you. It seems to me people in trouble gravitate to me. Is that the way it is to you? I don't have any problem finding people in trouble. So the sermon isn't go out and find them. The sermon is when you meet them, when they come across your path, or sometimes people in trouble kind of collide into you, what do you do? So that's what I want to guide you through this morning. Very practical sermon. You need it because you've already said, I got people in trouble in my life. What are you supposed to do? Number one, it all starts with compassion. The story begins, it has a context, and what is the context? What, how do you find eternal life? And the answer is love God. So we start with love. Love God. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then we get to the next part of that command, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as believers, everything rises and falls for us with the love of God. In fact, the Scripture teaches us that we didn't first love God, but while we were still sinners and while we were still separated from God and while we were still sinning and while we were still thumbing our nose at God and going our own way, that God loved us before we ever loved him. In fact, the Scripture says about God that God is love. And so it's, it's, it's in the character of God. When we give our lives to Christ, then this love becomes a, a possibility for us. And we have the ability to do what we never had before in terms of compassion. So let's just stop and do a little analysis here, a little self-analysis. If it all starts with compassion, the first thing I need to say to you is, compassion is not my natural bent. 
by my own self, without Christ, compassion's not the first thing that I think about. My, my natural bent is self-preservation. My natural bent is self-survival. My natural bent is selfishness. My natural bent, I want the things for my comfort. I want the things for my needs. I want what I want. That's how my depraved heart without Christ functions naturally. In fact, the story kind of exposes that. There are three groups of people in this story, right? The, the robbers are the first group of people, and they have a philosophy of life that's evident by what they do. Their philosophy is, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. You probably know people like that. The second group of people represented in the story are the pastor and the worship leader whose philosophy of life is, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. And then we come to the Good Samaritan, who represents a third group of people, and their philosophy of life is, what's mine is yours, and I'm going to give it. Now, how in the world do you get to what's mine is yours, and I'm going to give it to you? You, you have to be transformed by the Holy Spirit of God himself. And God, who is love, comes to reside in my heart, and he gives me capabilities that I never had before. I couldn't overcome temptation before. I always gave in to it. But now, with the Holy Spirit, I can overcome temptation. I didn't love people before. I, I might have loved them in some emotional way or some superficial way, but mostly I just loved people because they'd love me back to get what I want. It was manipulation. It wasn't true compassion. It wasn't an unconditional agape love. And so this story starts with love. Love God. Love your neighbor. The good Samaritan, who is he? He's a guy that when he sees somebody in trouble, he feels he's moved by the compassion that only God can put in a person's heart. That's where it all begins. If you try to do this, you try to help people without compassion, I just want you to know it is not going to work out for you. So it starts with the love of God. Secondly, I would say to you from this very story that you can't help people from the other side of the street. The, the priest, the Levite, they see the guy in trouble and then they move to the opposite side and just keep going. There's a couple of ways we do this in life. Um, we, we recognize that there's somebody over there and, and they're a mess and so... It, kind of pangs our conscience a little bit, so we just write a check and send it to our charity. Now, there's nothing wrong with supporting uh, groups that help people in need and help them in trouble. But if you're doing that as a substitute for, for loving people yourself, then it's not going to work for you. You, you understand, you, you can't write enough checks to get it into heaven, right? You, you can't buy your way into heaven. In heaven, the streets are made of gold. Have you ever thought about this? That means God thinks of gold like asphalt. What, what, how much money are you going to give God that somehow it's going to get you into heaven? So, so, so many Americans just want to stay clean and pristine, and they don't want to, they don't want to be around people in trouble, and so they just write a check. That's not what God's asking for. God's asking for a 
for an involvement, for embracing people in trouble. And, and when you do that, when you leave the opposite side of the street and you go over to help people in trouble, well, there's just no other way to say this. They're, they're messy. People in trouble, they're, they're just messy. This good Samaritan gets down there. This guy has been beaten up. He's bleeding. He's got, maybe he's busted up some bones. That's just, you, that's going to get on you. When you roll up your sleeves and you cross the street and you get down in the ditch with the guy who's been beat up and left for dead, you, it's going to get on you. I, how, how, have you already discovered this? Uh, this is, I learned this one day. There is no way to fix a toilet without hugging it. It's just the nature of the beast. If, you're, if it's broken and it's not working, you've got to get down. Well, that's, it. that's the way it is with helping people. It, it's just by its nature, it's messy. they got baggage. They're dirty. They've been beaten. They're in trouble. And you've got to leave the clean side of the street. And you've got to get down in the ditch with them in the messy side of the street. And that's a part of this story as well. There's a part of this, there's a story, there's a part of this that doesn't, it's not in there. I'm going to kind of slide it in there. Notice that in the story, the Good Samaritan doesn't actually say anything to the guy. He, he stops, he helps him, he uses the, uses the best medicine of the time period that he lived in. He's got wine and oil. Maybe he tears the bottom of his cloak. Maybe another, something he's got, he, he wraps up his wounds he puts him on his animal, his own animal. He walks the rest of the way himself, but he doesn't speak to him. So I want to suggest to you that most people who are in trouble don't need to be scolded for being in trouble. It's kind of, it's kind of my bent. When I told you about my depraved bent a while ago, I'm selfish and self-centered. I, I tend to want to, I'll help you, but the first thing I want to do is give you a good lecture first. I want to give you a sermon first. Now, uh, let me say this to the kids here in the room. Uh, this is not a parent to child. If you have a child and they're in trouble, they need to, be, they need to understand how they got into trouble. You, got, you need to connect the dots for them. But if you're dealing with another person, person to person, adult to adult, uh, they know they're in trouble. They pretty much know how they got in trouble. They don't really need a lecture at that point. What they need is someone to care for them. And I've discovered over the years, uh, one of the things that's happened in my life is I realized this is a part of the testimony that God's used in me. When I've helped people in trouble, people have come back to, to me and said, you know one of the things that really God used to speak to me? When you helped me, you didn't lecture me. And in fact, people have told me that about you. People have told me one of the things that I love about Emmanuel is when I came, I didn't feel judged. Do you realize that's a big deal? They, they already know they're in trouble. They, they already know they, they got things that they can't overcome. Everybody's told them they're stupid or they're dumb or what they did wrong. What they need is for that love to come through. And when we do that, God uses us. Everybody will know you're my disciples by the way that you lecture one another, by the way that you scold one another. No, by the way that you love one another. So that's a part of this, this template that we have here. Now let me tell you the one thing that helps me more than any other thing 
when it comes to people in trouble in my life. Uh, this, this, is what, this is what I think helps me have the right attitude in that moment. Uh, there's a moment when uh, someone who is in trouble comes alongside of you in your life, like a, like a parallel path. Sometimes there's a moment where they come across your path. And sometimes, because they're in trouble, they collide into you. Here's, here's what really helps me and helps me to do the right thing in that moment. When someone is placed in your path, consider it a divine appointment. Uh, let's talk about your viewpoint of, of God just a little bit. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who kind of think that God is in charge of all the big things in the world, uh, but, you know, when it comes to the little stuff, uh, the, the intricacies of our life, that's a lucky break or an unlucky break or it's haphazard or it's accidental or it's fortuitous or, well, you know, we have all these phrases that we use that mean God probably not, God probably doesn't care about every little thing. And yet, the scripture says that God keeps track even of the sparrows. Do you know the story that in our history, our founding fathers were all gathered in Philadelphia. They were going to write uh, later, what we now know is they were going to write a constitution that would bind the 13 states together into one nation. And they, they, were, they weren't getting it done. They were gridlocked. They, they had very different ideas about representation and big states and small states and, and giving up uh, authority from the states to the federal government. And they were, they were going nowhere. It was a hot summer, uh, 1776. And Benjamin Franklin, who had not really spoken very much, finally in the, in the heat of gridlock, got up and he said, if... A sparrow cannot fall without an omnipotent, almighty God knowing it. Then how can a nation rise without acknowledging who he is? And he moved by motion that every morning henceforth they should begin in prayer. And uh, all the founding fathers said that's what changed the gridlock. That's how they began to go forward from that point forward. Do you understand the point? God's not just the God that raises up one nation and puts down another. He most certainly does that. The scripture says the king's heart is in his hand. He lifts one up and puts another down. But even while he takes care of these great worldwide issues, he knows about every little thing that happens in your life. Is that your God? Do you know the first part of the book of Job? Satan wants to do something to Job, and he can't do it unless he goes to God and gets God's permission. God's in charge of your life. There ain't anything that doesn't happen in your life. It has to go across the desk of God. It has to be stamped approved by God. God's the one who is sovereign and divine and omnipotent in all all the things of your life. And so that means then that when this person in trouble, so many of you have already raised your hands, I got people in trouble in my life. When that person in trouble is placed in your life, it's a divine appointment. It's, it's more than that. It's a sacred obligation. God has thought so highly of you that he would entrust to you the soul of someone else 
knowing that you would represent him in love and speak truth to that person. Have you considered the people in trouble in your life like that? You see, that's, a, that's an entirely different outlook. That they are not just the roll of the eyes and a sigh, I got to help John Doe again. These are people that God has entrusted you with. It's divine by its very nature. Well, what does the Good Samaritan do with this divine appointment? We discover that what he does, now the the Bible doesn't use this word, but what he does is triage. Uh, Triage is a is a medical word that literally came out of, it was developed out of military medical history. When soldiers would come in from the battle, the doctors would do triage. They would determine, these guys are going to die. There's nothing we can do to help them. These guys are really serious. They need help right away. These guys have got problems, but they can live long enough for us to help these guys. And they would divide up up the, the wounded so that they could properly, with priority, take care of their problems. And so triage is taking care of the urgent need of the person in trouble. Sometimes it's money. Uh, Sometimes it's a meal. Sometimes you actually do need to take them to ER. Uh, Sometimes it involves getting them into uh, treatment. Uh, Sometimes it involves something different or a combination of those things. Uh, Triage is taking care of the urgent. But That's not the end of what you're called to do. You take care of the urgent so that you can get to the important. The the urgent, as it presents itself, looks like it's the most important thing, but it's not. It's something you've got to do so you have a platform and a voice and so that you can show your love. But the most important thing is always, look at me, always always spiritual. That's the most important thing. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So many times people in trouble think it's money. If you'll just give me some money, just give me $500 till Friday. They think that's what it is. That's not what it is. There are a whole series of things in their life that have led them to that. Now there's triage there. There's urgency that sometimes you've got to take care of. But you do that in the name of Christ so that you can get to the important. And the important thing is always spiritual for every single person on this planet. Some of you, the person that's in trouble in your life, they don't need any money. They got a good job. They got a 401k. That's not what they need. They they don't need a better health care plan. That's not what they need. They don't have anybody in their life that'll even talk to them. They don't have any friends at all. They've, They've lost their marriage. They lost their kids. The kids won't talk to them. They don't need money. Their problem is clearly something different. Well, everybody's problem is really spiritual in its nature. And so you do the triage, you take care of the urgent so that you can get to the important. And and that's why giving through and living through a church is so good because everything we do is going to be in the name of Jesus. Everything we do is going to point people to faith. That's what we're always going to do. One of the things that you'll discover, if you, if you choose to embark on the Samaritan's road, you will discover that this is going to require some sacrifice of you. Uh, here's what we see about the Samaritan. Uh, first of all, it messes up his time schedule. He's on his way to Jericho, 
And now he's got to stop, and he's, he's, it's, taken, it's taken him away from his schedule. Secondly, it's going to demand some resources. It takes his wine and his oil and something that he uses for bandages. It takes his resources. Third, the guy can't walk, so he puts him on his own animal, and then the Samaritan has to walk the rest of the way to Jericho. And by the way, from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's uphill all the way. So he's got to walk uphill with this other guy on his animal. When he gets to the inn, he takes care of the guy. And then when he goes to do his business, and clearly the innkeeper knows him. They have a relationship because he can do this. He can say, I'm going to go see my other clients. I'll be back. Here's two denarii, and it costs him even more money. there's There's a lot of sacrifice here that's demonstrated in the Samaritan's life. Here's what I've discovered personally when I'm helping people in trouble. It always takes more money than I think, and it always takes more time than I think. Always. It's, it's always going to be messier than I thought, and it's, and it's going to be more difficult than I thought. Always. It's kind of why we come up with phrases like, no good deed co- goes unpunished. Because you start off trying to help them, and then, oh, it's going to demand more than you thought. And then it's going to, more time and more money and more effort and more sacrifice. So I want to tell you from the get-go, this is going to take sacrifice. And it's because of this that some of us decide, I don't really think I want to do that. And to you, I want to say, how much did Christ sacrifice for you? Christ was mocked for you. His beard was pulled out for you. He was beaten and whipped for you. He was crucified for you. Really? You're thinking you're going to bag out on the sacrifice? We're the Christ followers. The servant is not above the master. And so I, I want to encourage you, yeah, there's going to be some sacrifice here. But I want you to know, it's still a divine appointment. God's still calling you to do this. Well, when Jesus tells this story, he tells it to a Hebrew attorney. And he's got a a Hebrew audience around him. I want to suggest to you that if Jesus had told this story to an American audience, there there might be more to the parable. There might be more to the story. So just give me a little... Give me a little leeway here as I create a little more to the parable and the story that makes it fit the American experience. So here's how it would go for Americans. The, the Good Samaritan uh, is gone for uh, several days. Um, he sees his clients. He comes back through Jericho. He comes back to the inn. He says to the innkeeper, uh, what do I need to do to square up with you? He finds out that to square up with the innkeeper is a lot more money than he expected. It seems that the guy that he helped out is feeling really pretty good now, and he's upgraded to the ambassador's suite at the hotel. So he goes up to the ambassador's suite. He knocks on the door. Nobody's really there. The door's kind of open. When he opens the door, he can see all the dishes from room service everywhere in there. And clearly, there's a couple other guys there who seem to be kind of hungover from a party the night before. And he says, where's the guy that got beat up? And they go, oh, he's down by the pool. 
he goes down by the pool and he finds the guy. And now they're having their very first conversation because before the guy was unconscious and he, he wasn't really clear. And, and he says, hey, I'm the guy that helped you and paid for you. And the guy said, oh, man, thanks so much. He said, I'm so glad to see you. He said, uh, thanks for helping me. He said, I think if you could just help me uh, in terms of my rehabilitation for a couple of more months, I'll be okay. He says, by the pool with his friends. The... The Samaritan seems to be uncertain about this. I'm not sure this is what I really should be doing for you. And when the man who's been beat up detects his uncertainty, he says, well, listen, you really owe me. He said, in fact, if you're not going to help me, I want you to know I've already contacted an attorney. When you put me on your animal, I think you did some permanent damage. You should have had a chariot or something for me to lie in. I, and, and my trauma, oh. Oh, my trauma. Does that sound more like the American story to you? I mention that to get to this last point. Your actions of obedience directed by the word of God through the words of Jesus himself cannot be predicated upon the results. I... Look, I just want to tell you, I've been doing this a while, trying to love people, trying to help people in trouble. A lot of those people never, ever even said thank you to me. A lot of those people never gave their lives to Christ. A lot of those people never joined Emmanuel Baptist Church. And a lot of those people, when I wouldn't give them more money or more help, cursed me as they left. You might be the kind of person who says, that's what's happened to me too, Paul, and because of that, I don't think I want to do this anymore. But, but I want to suggest to you, you don't save people. You're not in the result business. That's what God does. God's in charge of the results. All I'm, all I'm in is the, I'm in labor, not in management. I, I, my role is just to be obedient I'm an obedient servant to the Lord. God's the one in charge of it all. And one thing I have discovered is sometimes I help someone and the result doesn't seem to be good. And then I find out a year, two, three years later that God used me to change their lives and they gave their life to Christ. You see, you don't know how the thing's going to go. You don't know whether you're in the plowing, the sowing, the watering, or the reaping season. You just, you're just called to be obedient and God's in charge of all the rest. So I want to say to you, when God speaks to you, when he brings someone into your life, your job is to be a Christ follower. Your job is to be obedient. Your job is to recognize this is a divine appointment and a sacred responsibility. God's in charge of all the rest. And that sets me free. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. There's more in Luke chapter 10, but we're out of time. But I wonder this morning, maybe God has taken a very practical sermon to give you a, a template, a direction on how you are to help people in trouble. Most of you in this room, you have already confessed, I got a whole bunch of people in trouble who are already in my life. So I'm not asking you to go out and find somebody. I'm asking you to begin to act in a Christ-like manner with those that are already in your life. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed.
I wonder how many of you would de- demonstrate by the uplifted hand and you would just say, uh, Paul, pray for me. I want to be a good Samaritan. And you just lift your hand up all over the room. I know that's your heart. I know it is. That's why you're here. That's why you came here to hear God speak to you. And so let's ask God to do that work. Father, you've seen every hand, but more importantly, you know every heart. We are, we are not the Samaritans that we should be. Too many times I'm quick to give in to my old depraved heart and I, I act out of self-preservation or self-survival. Too many times I remember the story of the person I tried to help and it didn't end well. Too many times I, I think I, I'm really too busy for that today. And Father, I pray that I would begin to see this life with eternal eyes. And what a wonderful privilege it is when you bring someone into my life. Father, that you would honor me and trust me with a soul, a soul that can have eternity, a soul that can have eternal life, a soul that can know Christ. Oh, Father, thank you for the beautiful privilege that that is. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. That as we recognize the beautiful privileges that you've given us, that we would respond out of the loving heart that you gave us when you gave us Christ Jesus, that you gave us when you gave us the forgiveness of sins, and that we would begin to respond in a way that would bring you honor and glory. Father, do this for us, for we pray it all in the most precious and holy name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. Well, by way of benediction, the last phrase of the story of the Good Samaritan from Jesus himself is this. Go and do likewise. I know that there's folks in trouble in your life. You've already confessed it. So now the question is, what are we going to do about it? Luke 10 is a template, and Jesus says, Go and act just like that. And when we do, supernatural, powerful, wonderful things will happen in your life, will happen in the lives of those in trouble, and God will use us in ways that we've never experienced before. Will you stand with us? I've asked Eddie and the band if they would come back and lead us in one last worship song. listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at myemmanuel.net.